0: Welcome to Language and Culture with Dr. J. I am Dr. J. This episode takes us to Kansas City to the Nelson Atkins Museum of Art with director and CEO Julian Sugasagotia. The episode was recorded in January 2020, before the breakout of the corona pandemic. The museum is unfortunately closed at this time to prevent the spread of the coronavirus, but there are great virtual tours and information online. Today's episode takes us to the internationally renowned Nelson Atkins Museum of Art in Kansas City and to the offices of the museum's CEO and director, Julian Sugasagoitia. Welcome Dr. Sugasagoitia, or Mr. Z as you're known in Kansas City, or Julian, as I think you prefer to be called.
1: Totally, exactly. (laughs) Thank you for having me.
0: Your personal background, as well as your education and career are perfectly suited for this podcast, so I'm very excited to have you as my guest today. You were born in the Ciudad de Mexico. Mm-hmm. Your mother is Suzanne, Helen, Rose, Alexander Katz-Kaufmann,
1: yes, you have a
0: very well known in Mexico as Susana Alexander mm-hmm. for her role in the telenovela Chucho El Roto, among many other accomplishments. Perfect. Your maternal grandparents were German. Mm -hmm. Your paternal grandfather was a Spanish journalist. Mm -hmm. Your sister Tatiana is a dancer and choreographer who studied in Russia. (laughs) You yourself grew up speaking Spanish, French, and English, and later added Italian, German, and Portuguese. You studied in France mm-hmm. and finished the PhD at the Sorbonne. Mm-hmm. Your wife is French. Yes. You have lived in the Americas, Europe and Africa. So the question, where do you feel most at home and what culture and language do you feel most comfortable with?
1: So first, I think I feel at home and I define home today is where my wife and kids are. And today's Kansas City. and. Uh, and then the other place where I feel most at home are museums, and that, that's how then my professional life took a, a turn, because I've enjoyed museums uh, since before thinking that it is a profession, but it is, it is a place that, that I know how to navigate since mm. very young, and therefore somewhere that I feel at home.
0: Mm-hmm. And if you if you um, if you compare your experience mm-hmm. right before the interview, we talked a little bit
1: about living in New York. Mm-hmm.
0: What what different cities? What flair do different cities have for you? Just just kind of from, so, from a feeling. So
1: definitely, and I just actually, I'm just landing back from from a trip to New York, and and, and having been a couple of weeks ago in Tokyo and Kyoto. One uh, of the feelings, and as as we're approaching. Uh, the museum this morning back from, from New York. The cities have energies and I think I think uh, size does matter and history of the city does matter and, and the DNA of the city is born by all of that. Mm-hmm. And in a way, um, having been born in Mexico City, which is today one of the most energetic and dynamic cities Absolutely. of the world, but I think it has always been. There is something of the DNA that when the conquistadors arrive, yeah. when Hernan Cortes goes and arrives to Mexico, we just celebrate the five hundred year. So it's five hundred years ago that Cortes not only arrives to Mexico but has the first encounter with uh, the the emperor of the of the Aztec Empire at that moment, which is also imagined. Just five hundred years ago, it was two different civilizations, world <laughs> gone together, but the Spaniards were. Amazed by the size of Mexico City. They compare the riches and the luxury only to the greatest capitals. At the time, Venice came to mind also because there was water. So Mexico City has been and continues to be and perhaps it's the position, the DNA, something, but it's vibrant, it's international. But even when I left many years ago, it was already a big capital with a lot of energy. So my first experience living in Europe, when first when I was 12 in Cardiff, It's, oh my God, this is so small, this is so intimate, and and it felt also reassuring and easy. Then living in Paris, Paris, it has order and and beauty, and and definitely bigger size than Cardiff, Um, but on the other side, Cardiff gave me so much, gave me English to begin with, with a different accent, I guess, at the time. <laughs> but uh, and gave me also a sense of Europe and seasons. Mm. Mm. So then I thought I, I love seasons, and so I wanted to always live in seasons, in place where we had seasons. Therefore I went to Paris to do also my studies. Um, but Paris is the sense of grandeur, the the, the sheer again, I think it's dominated by the urbanism of Osman, but it is a city that I understand. It mm. well, I get lost very easily. That was a city with this pottery. And there, so surprisingly, Mexico gave you the sense also of diversity, of social class, of strata and everything. And that is something that you encounter every day today too. You, you, you walk on the streets of Mexico, then inevitably you're always seeing a, a magnitude mm-hmm. And, and perhaps because I was born there, I see it and I can sense mm-hmm. it more, all the social classes interacting together. But there is a togetherness that is mm-hmm. very important. That uh, In Paris, both I was less attuned and to today to, to distinguish social class. And I think there is, but I think also it's a more homogeneous society. And especially in the years I was living there, you know, that there was much more of a larger middle class. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that is something that also, you see in the construct of a city, and perhaps the tension there is the city versus the suburbs. Well, in France, like, again,
0: you have the and exactly. that, that's where you have the problem.
1: Today, okay. today that, those are the tensions that we're experiencing. But that city gave me also the sense of also the history, the beauty of, mm. of and the power of, of architecture as, a, as an emblem of of the, the, what the French are very good, it's about la, de la and and and, and, and propelling, almost, the mystique of that. Uh, and then, I lived very joyful years in Italy, um, preparing a big exhibition on an Egyptian uh, queen, Nefertari, of which today we have another exhibition here.
0: Where in Italy was
1: it? I lived in Rome, in Rome. For, for, for almost three years, and then I was the director of the festival, the Spoleto, for the visual arts section with Maestro Menotti at the time. As the leader, and but that was just b- going back and forth from Paris, but it was really also how different, how close. The, what is beautiful about Europe is all the countries mm. are so close, and yet you mm. there are different so this cultures and mm. completely distinct. So joyful time in Italy. Um, all the while, I was traveling a lot to Africa. I was traveling to to to, to do a lot of projects, and then uh, to Latin America. Once I started living in New York, but New York has and continues to be a city that is fascinating how how it generates and how it regenerates itself. Mm. you know. And I'm fascinated with the energy, the concentration also in the density. Mm. And when we're talking about New York, we're mostly always talking also about Manhattan, the experience of that Manhattan. It's more than that. Exactly. Versus the whole New York. And I think the richness comes when you start really discovering the boroughs and the richness and subtleties and the diversity that New York has. It's because of the complexity and density that all all the five boroughs give you, but it is still one of the greatest cities in the world. And I, as I was mentioning, I, I just, I'm just coming back from from a trip to Japan over Thanksgiving, and there it's such a beautiful experience. And again, a country in which. Uh, but I speak I many the languages, there is where you become, again, a foreigner, and, and you realize, again, I don't speak the language, I don't, it's such also a great country in which so many things are already bilingual, so that to help foreigners like us uh, navigate the city, but... What but a city! What when a city. you speak
0: a few languages, mm-hmm. it's it's nice not to be able to speak the language. It well, mean, to feel like you are really abroad, like you're really experiencing yeah. a new culture, a new language. Uh, where this feeling of being a tourist, of being lost, of being
1: uh, at the mercy of the vulnerable. But you know, <laughs> and because I experience it so seldomly, uh, I also get more nervous yeah. than I thought. You yeah. know, like. It, it, there is an anxiety that, that I experience because of not speaking the language which it's deep and profound which also leads me to believe that that's why I speak many languages mm-hmm. because I there is a fear in me when I don't understand when, when I, I feel very vulnerable and very yeah out of, out of control and out of touch and therefore I make an effort to try to learn the language or speak the language or you know now Today, I think it's late to get into Asian languages. It's never too (laughs) late. It's never
0: too late. Add on a seventh. Mm -hmm. So in what ways is your rich cultural heritage Mm -hmm. an asset? And in what ways a hindrance, perhaps?
1: I think it's for what?
0: Is it ever a hindrance? For for me, Mm -hmm. uh, I mentioned before the interview, I, I do think that it's difficult for me to say what my mother tongue is well I guess I have a mother tongue mm-hmm. it's, it's Hungarian mm-hmm. but I am absolutely more versatile and fluent in English than in Hungarian Today. Mm-hmm. Uh, my vocabulary is richer etc mm-hmm. um, it is difficult to know where home is mm-hmm. I agree with you home is where the heart is home is where your family is yeah. where your children are mm-hmm. where, your, where your family is um, is it a hindrance ever um, also in your mm-hmm. work um do we reach the level of of proficiency in a language if we speak more more than one language mm. do we can we maintain it do we are there hindrances in, in your opinion in, in your experience so so i don't i
1: so it, 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 i feel very lucky that from age four i was talking bilingual uh french and spanish um and then adding up more languages came easily and naturally by living in the different countries and It has always opened doors, so I don't see a downside. And if there's anything that I always encourage young people is to travel. Travel has been the best key for opening so many doors and so many things, especially in the kind of line of work in the arts, because art also becomes an international language. But the more you travel, the more you experience it and and it is. But the the notion of more of of the language as as a part of an identity came very early in my personal experience and, and, and continues to be, and, and it is always in the dialogue with the other, with, with others that perhaps do not experience what you and I have experienced by half-stance, by chance, I mean, we didn't set ourselves, it was not something that you set yourself to do, sometimes it's your parents or, or the circumstance or life propelled you in that way, but then, then it becomes a tool. But it is surprising when others have not experienced, and that they ask, "Oh my God, you speak more than one language?" Or you know, and in that dialogue, you you assert your your identity. But I remember very clearly. So, as as, as a young person, I was I had the fortune. My parents immigrating uh, because of the Second World War. Uh, as you mentioned, my grandparents from Germany had to leave Germany because of uh, the Nazi regime, and. For a few moments, Paris was a safe haven. The same thing for my 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 Spanish side of the family; they had to flee the civil war. My grandfather was very uh, active against Franco. Uh, it cost him his life. But uh, the, there was a peaceful moment of, during or after the civil war in France before the Gestapo. The Gestapo comes into occupies Paris, and at that moment, both families flee. But despite of that, so when my sister and I were born in Mexico, my father who had a love of French, because in escaping Spain and, and again in his studies, and he was a very young man, but France and that moment of respite, but also he had a wonderful teacher that encouraged him reading and learning French, so French became a very important thing for him. Uh, and then he had a passion for literature, and he always read in French. Um, and therefore, they put us in the French Frenchly in Mexico. Now, so it was a good school. Uh, we were certainly not going to go to the German school. We were certainly not going to go to the Spanish school. Uh, so okay. then, <laughs> in a way, but because of the international background and everything, the French school seemed an appropriate choice. And but when you're that kid, you put in the school. You. First of all, you don't want to go to school. I hate school.
0: Uh, <laughs> really? <laughs> oh, I cried
1: the first years I remember crying, and I still to this day. It was about it, Just university is when I started enjoying school. <laughs> um, but I didn't realize that the other kids didn't go to the same kind of thing. So it was like at age six or seven, I've been more conscious, interacting with other kids in, in the playgrounds of the house, not not, not, not in the schoolyard, that I realized. Oh, what? Your classes are not in that different. T- I mean, and the qu- so what they teach you? Well, or uh, how do they teach you? Well, they teach you in Spanish. I also realized the newspapers were coming to this house in Spanish, and I was not trying to read in Spanish. I was only trying to read in French. Till the day I started putting the language, what I professed in Spanish, and making the translations that were needed, and I discovered, oh my God, now I can also read in Spanish. But these are two channels,
0: mm-hmm, two
1: very distinct things, and not all the kids are mm-hmm. doing this. Mm-hmm. That was a realization earlier, um, and then it dis- it distinguishes you, you mm-hmm. know. And there is there is oh, you're going to a different school, so for some it's positive, for some it's not.
0: And I think uh, <clears throat> I feel very much at home in a lot of parts of the world mm-hmm. and I feel very much at home with with several languages mm-hmm. but I think maybe maybe you really hit the nail on the on the head mm-hmm. with this isolation the sense of isolation mm-hmm. or, or or you have a different understanding of cultures and of languages and of the world you have a different mm-hmm. um, when you look at a particular situation you bring by nature your inter- your Mexican interpretation, your French interpretation, mm-hmm. your your German interpretation, mm-hmm. your Spanish interpretation you, you bring this whole rich cultural background mm-hmm. to it, and therefore have possibly a, a more in-depth understanding that others don't. Mm-hmm.
1: Um,
0: so this 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 uh, quasi wisdom that you have possibly mm-hmm. is, is is more difficult at, a, at an earlier age or or uh, you know it,
1: it's just more self-awareness because mm-hmm. and and I think. Uh, What it gives you early on, and and then also at the age of twelve, when I first I left Mexico with my family to go to, my mom was directing theater in Cardiff, at the invitation of the British Council, Uh, and we arrived to live there, and neither my sister nor I spoke English well.
0: And you called her maman. No, mamita. Mamita, okay, because just how just you said maman. Mm, you just said maman. <laughs> just said maman. Uh-huh. That's interesting. So, so maman is probably from your kids, uh-huh. for your wife, maman. Yeah, that would be. That's funny, funny.
1: but that's great. I mean, I mean, that's. You know, I mean, you know that when are speaking a lot of languages, you Absolutely, don't know absolutely. Those, you, you don't know, don't don't know, know, know it, yeah. yeah. And it is true at home, my wife and I speak French because we met uh-huh. in French. French. Uh, in, the, in the
0: France. e 19 is amandisme, I think Michelle said. We met at a party outside Paris,
1: actually, the Couteau de la Defense. But uh it is it is the natural language in which we speak, although she speaks Spanish and she speaks English, of course. Our kids now talk to us more in in English. We I try to maintain a bit of Spanish with my son and my daughter, but she speaks French to them. So it's just so an So anecdote. what
0: languages is the in, 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 normal dinner? What what, so what language is spoken at, at your house? So the anecdote
1: <laughs> that is fascinating, once we're on a skill lift in Colorado. The four of us—it's a six-person skillet, so that we're the four of us and two people next to us. And so the heroes speak. (laughs) And at one point they turn to us. It's like, "Where are you from?" And then my kids inevitably say, "Oh, Kansas City." (laughs) And I said, "No, you're not. (laughs) Like, we heard like two three languages. Like, okay, so I speak Spanish sometimes to to my kids. I I naturally would speak Spanish." They speak back in English. Then to my wife, I speak French. And I don't know this. So the thing is, I'm not making either an effort. That's when I'm relaxed. I'm not making any effort. So I just, we go. But at dinner, yeah, it can go in many places. But English is more and more because it's it's their their language for the kids more and more. And so it it gravitates to that. But, yeah, but if I switch to with Tasha and my wife, it would be automatically French. So it is... We make a better, I mean, we do make an effort when we're with more people and so it's outside, <laughs> but still sometimes we, I don't notice that I just turned back to Tati and Frank. People think that we might be talking secretly. No, it's just that is my default, you know, and I talk, it does make an effort to just speak one mm-hmm. language. Uh, and it's not its not either, or trying to demonstrate that i speak speaking language, that's how it comes. But going, going back to the other thing that I wanted to share is that I became Mexican the first time, then I left Mexico. Uh-huh. Because in Mexico, even well, I noticed that yes, not all the kids were bilingual well or going to a to a foreign school. At the foreign school we were all together the same. And then as age goes, you you, you understand Your friends. okay, these are because this, and then there's the English school here, all the other ones, and then you start befriending others and, and then you understand it. But we were all in that sense, or you know, and even we were always also welcoming a lot of uh, foreign kids that were coming because the parents were diplomats and everything. So if anything, languages also gave you, from the get-go, the notion that there's not one system, the notion that there's not one way of looking at life, um, and that there's no better or worse either, you know, that there is not a judgment. One word is one way you say it, and it's the same thing, but there's different ways of saying it, there's different ways of approaching the same thing. And it gives
0: it a different flavor. And then there's the flavors, and so it's the nuance. So I think languages
1: give you a perspective that things are not binary, uh, it's not black or white. You know, it gives you that life is nuance, and that the ex- experiences as foreigners, and we're all foreigners, and we're all locals, and you know, like that we might all experience life differently and that you have to be respectful of that and i think it gives you empathy it gives you an awakening to the other in a way that is different but it gives you also an awakening to yourself and for me living in england as a 12 year old when i didn't speak english was a very very strong awakening and i entered first and that was great that it was coffee in southern high school they had an immersion school foreigners, And there was a lot of people coming from Pakistan. There was a lot of people coming from India. There was a lot of people coming from different countries. Some that spoke English. Some that didn't speak English. Italy, uh, Portugal. So, you know, I, not refugees. I don't know if it was for, uh, Today, now, I, I don't know exactly. But there was an inter- like an international school. And then you had three levels of learning English. And if you went through those three levels, then you were sent to the normal school. You know, and integrated the others, the, but all was in the same school. I learned very quickly, I guess the fact that already having one other language, or you no, know, it helped me. And so I just skipped even the level two. I went from one to three and then in less than six months, I was already in the, in the normal grade. But that was the worst thing that could have happened. Because all of a sudden, it's not like my whole class integrated the, the normal grade. I was almost by myself, all of a sudden with the British kids mm. and then I was a foreigner. Mm. And that was very tough mm. and, and it was tough in, many, in so many ways and I was, and then, you know, you're sti- there's the stigma, oh this is the, for worse, and it was just interesting but then, yeah, that's that when you become also like, you have to expect more, you have to explain your I and mean, what that means. And, well, you don't look at it and also that is some some sort of the of the dissonance that the podcast will not, but yeah, the look, the fact that what people expect of you mm-hmm. to be. And so that perhaps is, was the most rich moments uh, of, of, of life. And then you go back to Mexico, and then you realize, first of all, I discovered, as I said earlier, the seasons, I like seasons. Mm-hmm. and but Then it's like, I need to continue travel. This mm-hmm. is, you cannot, after you start moving around, it's difficult to, to say, I can just be in one place, you know. Mm-hmm. So, moving is part of the, uh, and changing places is part of the stigma, I guess, that comes with all this.
0: Okay. If you would indulge me, mm-hmm. we speak four languages in common. Mm-hmm. Si empezáramos a hablar español, ¿cómo se sentiría usted?
1: Muy tranquilo. Muy tranquilo.
0: Sí, tranquilo. Sí.
1: Español es, sigue siendo mi lengua materna, y yo diría que lo que era bonito del liceo franco-mexicano donde hice los estudios es que Yo lo que sentía, y con todos mis colegas y compañeros, es que la educación era en francés. Y, y el francés se vuelve la lengua que forma el, la, la impunidad, que forma el aprender. Y todo lo que era divertido, el recreo, estar fuera todo era en español. Y entonces las emociones, el estar con amigos, es en español. Y la disciplina, el trabajo, el lo intelectual, ser. entonces era una muy buena dicotomía. Sí, mm.
0: pero ¿usted no, 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 no se siente diferente hablando español? ¿O sí? No. ¿Hay una... no? No, no,
1: no. no. Todo ninguna,
0: ¿Ninguna diferencia en, en, en su voz, en su... no sé? No,
1: no. no. no en, en ese sentido soy transparente a mí mismo en francés o en español y en inglés y no me doy ni cuenta. ¿no? O sea, como que en ese sentido soy muy... <coughs>
0: Et si on changeait de, de registre, on parlait français, par exemple Non, le français aussi, c'est... C'est, c'est, c'est la langue familiale aussi, parce là, que c'est... la
1: langue on parle à la maison, c'est la langue dans laquelle j'ai fait mes études. Donc, depuis quatre ans, je parle français. C'est euh, mon outil de travail. À un moment donné, le français, faisant toute l'université euh, en, en France, français ouais. et, mon, et mon langage pour l'histoire de l'art, et mon langage philosophique, sont en français, donc parfois même en anglais,
0: Vous cherchez les pas. mots
1: même ouais. Je sais pas prononcer euh, Plotin, le philosophe Plotin, <rire> du, 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 du début du, du christianisme, Plotinus. Je, savais je pas, sais. pas ça, ça disait Plotinus en anglais. Non, il, il fallait trouver parfois, non? Plato pour Platon, ok, ah Plato. Donc il fallait trouver parce ouais, que ouais. moi j'ai fait toutes mes études dans une langue et, et c'est là où je découvre. Donc ouais. on prend les concepts, on comprend ça. Et, et bon, c'est fascinant, mais je, oui, mais, mais, mais mon langage de travail était le français, maintenant l'anglais est devenu quand même. Après après presque 20 ans aux États-Unis. Ça,
0: ça Il y a quand même des sujets qu'on associe avec les, les langues. Par exemple, pour moi, la mm-hmm. littérature française, ouais. j'ai fait un doctorat en littérature française, donc mm-hmm. pour parler de la littérature, c'est, c'est en français. Ouais. Pour trouver les mots, pour discuter mm-hmm. de, de la littérature, c'est, 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 c'est presque impossible de le mm-hmm. faire en anglais. Ouais. En allemand, ça serait. Ça serait pas C'est... imaginable pour moi. Et moi, voilà,
1: une des grandes joies de, de ces derniers mois, j'étais à Mexico avec euh, un de mes camarades, justement du lycée, et qui est un grand écrivain au Mexique et qui donne des cours de justement de littérature française comparée à Langnam, la grande université prestigieuse. Et il m'a invité euh, voir un de ses cours. Et bon, ma grande surprise et joie, à nouveau, je ne pas. Je savais pas à quoi m'attendre, mais tout le cours est en français. Et tous ces étudiants, tous débattaient la littérature française en français. Et c'était riche et intéressant. Et là, presque naïvement, presque <rire> comme, euh, ne sachant pas à quoi m'attendre, mais je leur posais la question aussi, s'ils prenaient les notes en français ou en espagnol. Parce que ah, c'est, c'est bien là, bien c'est, bien là, bien c'est bien là aussi on voit le, le, le niveau de, 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 de maniement d'une langue. Et ils me disaient non, on prend tous des notes en français. Ce qui, pour ce qui, bon, moi, voulait dire que leur niveau était déjà très, très bon. Et je savais c'est pas, so leur que le, leurs interactions, c'était, il n'y avait pas une grande conversation, c'était plus une classe. Mais, mais c'était très intéressant de voir, oui, non, je crois que si on apprend la littérature française, il vaut mieux que ça soit toujours oui, dans oui, la langue. Oui, oui, parce que c'est véhiculer toutes les expressions et, 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 et la qualité. Tout à fait. Et c'était une, une grande joie, c'était, je, c'est il y a quelques mois j'étais à Mexico avec lui. Oui.
0: Unsere vierte gemeinsame Sprache ist Deutsch. Die ja. einzige Sprache, soweit ich weiß, die wir beide bewusst gelernt haben. Wie fühlt sich diese Sprache denn an?
1: Sehr, sehr schlecht. Deutsch war, mein Großmutter Deutscherin war. Und ich habe gelebt zweimal zwei Monate in Berlin und dann, mein Deutsch war gut. Ich hatte Äh, philosophische Konversation mit äh, viele Leute, aber heute ist sehr sehr schlecht.
0: Man, man verliert dann die Sprache nach einer Weile. Ja, ja ich habe mhm.
1: vergessen, aber alles.
0: Ja? Man, man vergisst, wie man schnell unbewusst spricht. Also das, es ist dann eine eine man, man konzentriert sich und findet dann die Wörter, aber es kommt nicht natürlich.
1: oder, oder? It can come back. You say, yeah, it's all right, right. It's all right. I'll right. I'll back <laughs> into English. No, well, this was the surprise. We were in Germany this last summer with my family, and it was a surprise. I have family still in Berlin, uh, and that was I spent two summers, full summers, uh, just when the wall came down, trying to gain the language that my mother had, my grandmother had, in a way both loved and also resented to a certain degree. And I was very fluent. And now today, I mean, again, if I were to spend a whole week or a month, little by little I would be feel more comfortable. But it is that, that. And the other one, so Italian is totally transparent, so a little bit like like French uh, or, or...
0: Portuguese as well. No. But Portuguese. it's harder to speak it correctly then. Portuguese, my problem <laughs> with Portuguese is because Italian I do
1: do well. But again, I live there. So that is what comes when you spend time. I've, gone a lot to Brazil but not enough that that I go beyond the portuñol. Mm. So there they're, they're the, the the mess, the the confusion mm. between mm. Spanish and Portuguese. Mm. And also they're so nice for giving you not so mm. I, I can have a tr- a a conversation that would feel comfortable, but I know I'm making mistakes. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I know it's still what they call the Portunol. Mm. And as much as I Surpassed that in Italian. Now there was a time in which I would mix Spanish or French words just trying to see if, which one worked. Italian has, but I don't write it well. So mm-hmm. for instance, Italian, the, the grammar is very similar to French and, and I could make an effort, but still that is complicated. But I read it as difficult. You know.
0: I, I have a problem with mm-hmm. Romanian and Spanish. Because, um, because it's just uh, there's a funny story. We were at a restaurant in mm-hmm. Romania, and uh, the waiter came, and I said to him, um, mai, tarde. Mai, "mai tare, my tare, tare, mm-hmm. mai tare." And I was trying to say later, "mas So I was thinking, "mas tare." And "mas" in Romania is "mai," so it's not "mas," it's "mai." So I said "mai tare," and I said "tare." Well, "mai tare" means louder. So so this waiter stopped and he started saying it louder. I said, Maitare and, and he and he and he said it louder and I said, you know, Maitare. Mm-hmm. And so my friends started laughing because, you know, from my start, it's my my Mai, mai, terziu. mai
1: terziu. So
0: So there, there was just that sort of, mm-hmm. I didn't make
1: the... As they call it Fosami. Fosami, They're very close, but no, it is... It is... So there's, 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 there's these
0: little, where you just kind of feel comfortable mm-hmm. and you slip into it, but then you're mixing it. it, it that's also... That's famous.
1: for me, right. Yeah.
0: If I were to go to yeah. Brazil or Portugal. Mixing in yeah. the Spanish or French
1: even or... or so. But the other the other thing that I find fascinating so if I go to Greece, which is a country I love, I hear them speak, and it sounds like they're speaking the Spanish from Spain. So it's the, the, the accent, not like you know, the whole the whole sound. But I just don't understand anything. So it's like feel, I've had that with Greek. I feel, oh, I feel so it's good. familiar because I, I, the way they talk is like. I just understand. So it's so both lovely and frustrating, <laughs> and that's another country where I'm frustrated. And I love that culture, and you know, and there's a few words and that I know, but but that's it is nice. both, and you feel it sh- I should know it because I understand the sounds. The yes. sounds seem like I know, I know what like. you mean. I mean <laughs>
0: so, what languages or what language do you end up using the most in your work?
1: So it's interesting. Um, in my former job, when I was director of a value in New York. Uh, that was, in New York, it was amazing because being the Latin American Museum and Latino Museum or next Museum of New York, I, it was a perfect balance of speaking Spanish and English in a normal day. And then I would go home and I would speak French. And that, you know, then my three languages, which is, as you were saying, where do you feel more comfortable? What I would relate to you is I do feel comfortable exclusively the three on a regular basis. Mm. And as much as I love Italian, I don't need it, even if I kept my Italian, once I went back after my mm. living in Italy, the, the magic is that I had someone working with me at the time that, that was Italian. So my associate there in, in Paris, So we ended up speaking Italian, and that kept it. If I had had an associate that was German, perhaps my German would have been better today Mm -hmm. than it is. Uh, But I don't miss it, I mean, again. But when I came here, it's most of the time just uh, speaking English on an everyday basis, even if the stuff is very international. But, yeah, English is the number friend, it's the And then I do miss speaking Spanish, you know, and where I miss, being myself in that language. And one of my best friends here uh, happens to be uh, from Venezuela, but it is this kind of also... You know, it's difficult to make friends late in life, or in my mid-50s, but it was like a lost friend that we had not seen each other. It was automatic, and our cultures, even his education in Venezuela mirrors so much mine in in both the passions that we have for literature and things like that and it was he's a scientist and so it's very different world but it's there in the culture and i think that we both enjoy that from time to time we can just get together speak our language and be ourselves in that notion of a very special self that mm. comes across through the language and the actualization
0: of that. I have that with Hungarian
1: mm-hmm. and I would have
0: said that uh, while I was living in the United States, mm-hmm. my three languages were English, French and Hungarian. That's mm-hmm. where I felt, you know, I was doing my PhD in, Fran- mm-hmm. in, in French and at home my parents always spoke Hungarian mm-hmm. and living in the US, I felt really, those mm-hmm. were my three languages, I felt chez moi. Mm-hmm. Um, Having now lived in Germany for so long, mm-hmm. it's kind of switching. Um, and I've noticed what you were saying with these specific topics. Mm-hmm. We reno- I've never renovated a house in mm-hmm. any other language except in German. Uh-huh. So, so I can't, I don't know how to say plaster or wall or I, I, I don't know the vocabulary. I don't feel mm-hmm. comfortable in English and Hungarian and French and Spanish in anything yeah. but German. German yeah. And my children are growing up in Germany. so. That whole vocabulary mm-hmm. of, of sc- the school vocabulary, the school situations, it's yeah. German is becoming what, what you were saying with English. German is becoming so much more a part of me. And I, I spend a lot of time speaking uh, Spanish mm-hmm. at work um, from my colleagues, mm-hmm. um, um, English. Of course, then German, Hungarian, mm-hmm. um, the French. I teach French still, mm-hmm. and I and I hang on to that mm-hmm. because I don't want to lose it. Mm-hmm. Because you do, you you ultimately lose a language if you don't practice it. If you're not sort of in daily contact, at least in your mind, okay. at least if you don't if you if you read it or, or think in the language, it's 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 very difficult to and you
1: know, maintain. Other thing, another thing that i discovered on the one side, having kids gets you to a part of the language that. You can only access through the rhymes or or things. So, exactly, at nursery rhymes now, we might know a bit more in English than in the other languages, because that is what came with living here. Uh, Mm -hmm. But the other thing is that even if we're fluent in a language, like Spanish or French, for me, or English, but right now the two that I want to refer to is Spanish and French, because I'm not living either in Mexico or in France, I start to know that there's some expressions that when I go to Mexico City, they're dated, you know? <laughs> and i like, it's, it's like my evolution of the language, or, or, or there I go, and now they have new expressions that, yeah, maybe they could, like, by the youth and everything, and so people that are my friend will say some new expressions that are like typical from today, that I don't get totally or that I see as novelty but mm-hmm. well, for them it's been part of the evolution of the language mm-hmm. and that if I say the same expression but that maybe now seems like oh that is so dated it's or dated. feels that that's, dated yeah. you know? so that, even the language is alive it's, absolutely. It's, and so it's just it's a constant evolution
0: that's also fascinating and frustrating at mm-hmm. the same time when you haven't been in the country for a while and then you go mm-hmm. visit and and you find yourself uh Re-experiencing, relearning or, mm-hmm. or learning to the to the language. I, I absolutely I, yeah. But
1: it's it's you know it's just as a, as I was saying about the cities. What it fascinates me is the capacity of regeneration of the cities. So the language is the same, and it's the city may be more visual because yeah, you you go through a neighborhood and it's like the language. It's good to have the, the things you recognize, and the, some things have never changed and. But then there's new buildings and or there's a new a second level of the periférico in Mexico City and like oh now I could not even drive I would get lost. <laughs> uh, but so some things are very dramatic and some things are very subtle. The same in New York you go and now there's these Hudson Yards it didn't exist ten years ago <laughs> and now there's buildings galore, but it's still New York and the flavor is there. So it just it's that and. Perhaps that is what makes it rich and, and exciting. And also, perhaps now at this age, you can start also looking back and forth. You know, you're like, oh, yeah, it takes time to get to noticing those things.
0: Sure, sure. So, coming from a French literature background, mm-hmm. one famous description of a museum visit is mm-hmm. in Émile Zola's La Sommoir, mm-hmm. where the central char- character, Gervaise, and mm-hmm. her wedding party go to Louvre. Mm-hmm. They stop, for example, in front of Véronese's uh, Les Noces du Canard, mm-hmm. uh, the Vinci's La Joconde, La Joconde mm-hmm. so the Mona Lisa, uh, Murillo's Virgin and Titian's Mistress, but, but they are preoccupied by the physicality mm-hmm. that they Read from the paintings Mm -hmm. and when they leave the Louvre uh, what they take away from the visit are uh, visual images Mm -hmm. and a sense of pride Mm -hmm. from having been to Mm -hmm. the Louvre how does this compare to an average visit to a museum on an average day by an average person
1: so you know one there's there's a couple of things that uh, come to mind in 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 reminding of of that description. So first of all, the first description is if today you were to the Louvre, the experience is that it is no longer the peaceful and contemplative visit because there's millions. The Louvre receives over 10 million visitors a year. So that experience versus the experience that we provide to our visitors here at the Nelson Atkins, it's very different because still here, there is not, you can have the contemplative but the reality is that there's not one experience today. Uh, and different audiences want different things from the museum. Mm-hmm. And I would say that audiences like us would want to perhaps discover something new and, some, and then at the same time, come back to see something you already know. So you, you might walk in our galleries. People love Art de de Monet. They would want to see Boulevard de Capucine uh some of the icons perhaps the Caravaggio those are the icons that they recognize and sometimes then they go to have a special exhibition to discover something that we brought especially uh, from out of our collections right now an Egyptian show celebrating Nefertari and that there is an excitement about also that it's going to be on for three or four months it's a great effort so but they're confident to go back then and see their usual friends and that they're more or less always at the same place, it's a comforting sense. A younger audience today is a self-actualization and we want them to come on their own terms and to discover what is meaningful for them because I think each generation is making meaning of the museum in a different way. But it has a lot to do less with the content of the painting, although it has that, but to the possibility of taking a selfie. We see a lot of those selfies now online. (laughs) No, before we had the Livre d'or, or or, or where you put notes. Today, social media tells us what people are saying about it in a very dynamic way. And there is a pride of being in the museum. There is an elevated sense of self that comes from being surrounded with the beauty or or the status that this institution provides on, on the experience. But on the other side, it's it's because we're sharing it with others. You know, no. um, Descartes said "Je pense, donc je suis." This dinner said, "I selfie, therefore I am." <laughs> you know, so <laughs> I think it's a very different proposition from even so last time.
0: It's mm. interesting. I mean, uh, I'm here with my children. Mm. As you know, I left them in the museum at the Nelson Atkins, and oh, of course, they. I will. I will. They're they're confined to a specific spot, um, but they wanted to see the Impressionists. I mean, they they are still very young, and mm-hmm. what they most know are the the Impressionists that we've looked mm-hmm. at and they've seen. And they have not yet ever, today was the first day that they actually saw an Impressionist painting live, mm-hmm. actually oh, wow. experienced an Impressionist painting. So they know it from books and from some, mm-hmm. from various uh, other uh, venues, mm-hmm. uh, but never, have never actually come into, I, I don't think so. I, I don't so think that they... So this is their first museum experience? No, it's the not impression. their first museum experience at all, but it's their first World actual... Purchase. With an impressionist, interesting. I'll, I'll have to have a think, but I think so. Mm-hmm. And they were very excited about, uh, and they know the impressionists quite well. Mm-hmm. They they're excited by the impressionists, so that's what they wanted to see—the ones they recognized. More than the so moments. they more than the
1: the Egyptian mummies, yes.
0: So far, that I, I gave them the choice and that's what they that's what they gravitated towards. Mm-hmm. They wanted to see Monet, they wanted to see mm-hmm. Pissarro, they wanted to see uh, Van Gogh, they wanted to see, I mean, they were really... Yeah, that is
1: interesting in of itself still, uh, because the um, I do think we've come to see what we already hear about or recognize. No? And, and, and in their case, I the, really think
0: that's what it is in this icons, case. The
1: icons that you've heard about and then... And it's 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 at the end of the day, it's just pure marketing, you know. So mm-hmm. today, the overmarket impressionist names Valga, mm-hmm.
0: and, and products, I've been doing the marketing for yeah. it as well. It's, it's no, exactly. Sure. We're all sure, sure. Well, It's a value system. We say we value this,
1: therefore they hear it. And but it used to be that Egyptian, Greek, and Roman were the More. flavor. More. Mm-hmm. But they want to
0: see the Rodin. They, they want to see the Valga. So. Yeah.
1: That's <laughs> There's still a future for museums if you're, a <laughs> kid, if you're a But it might
0: be sort of my, you know, I, I find you're the impression. Biased. Yeah, I'm biased. I find the impressionist easy to show kids. It's it's for me. Maybe it's mm-hmm. just. Sort of, maybe it's, it is. It is probably just personal taste. But it's been easier for me mm-hmm. to teach my kids about impressionism and and sort of to make them love painting and to to bring them into contact with it. I don't know so, really why. I, I, I so it's
1: interesting <laughs> that you say that because. Um, <laughs> if you remember, at one point, Impressionism was described because it was so different and so different. So here, in this room right now, we have one preparing a Baroque exhibition from Italy. So Italian Baroque, again, inspired by the fact that we have our Caravaggio that has also traveled and we can borrow and bring some of the friends and we have great But when we started to bring these works of art, we're thinking, how do we make this palatable and also relatable? And this is the most theatrical kind of works of art. And there, you see David and Goliath, and you know the story. and, And so before, people would relate to paintings through the narrative of the story. So you would know the story. Generally, there are mythological or biblical subjects. The culture was such that you didn't need to read the label more or less to know this is the Nos de Cana, this is the, the Last Supper, this is uh, oh. the Deposition the de, uh, de la Croix. See, again, in French, my title is in French than in, in English. Um, or typologies of the paintings, because it was the common culture. And so people, the game was to read the painting and see the subtleties that the artist had done. Or, Oh my God, you see the expression of his suffering. Well, yes, if, if this is a torturous scene, but today's generation don't have that. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is less of a of a of a culture that either the myths are being shared or the religious culture. So we look at this uh, and we move on. Mm-hmm. And impressionism, because it's more modern and more imp- again more sensitive to people's reaction and less trying to decipher a story people like it more today mm-hmm. so i'm trying to think this is really the challenge today how do we make this very theatrical subject matter palatable to a younger audience and i don't know how to, but we're trying at least to ask the question not to give for granted that people will love it and in our historical terms, people who are in our business like have come here and like, oh my god, I'm getting all these masterpieces. And so for them, it's this marketing, it's already done. But how do we translate, besides Carvacs that everybody knows, there's so many other names that perhaps they're familiar, but we want that be get involved with the stories. You know? But I agree with you. No, 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 no. But but
0: I agree with you. I think that's one of the. In a way, we're in the same business, and one of the things is 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 really the social aspect of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, I. I gatherings and and something how do you teach poetry to younger kids mm-hmm. you tell the story you let them act it out mm-hmm. you 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 relate it to them how opera a lot of operas yeah. are being modernized which i don't necessarily like mm-hmm. but they are put i saw um in uh, hamburg uh completely modern where it was in this uh, high rise mm-hmm. it took place mm-hmm. in a high rise and then um, I'm not a huge fan of that, but mm-hmm. it but it relates it to younger audiences. The the subject matter, the, the conflicts are the same. Um, yes. So I think it's a, I it's for me
1: a, it is an interesting translation. So I'm a big fan of uh, Peter Sellers, who has done a lot of those recontextualizing of Mozart, for instance. I've seen a few of those, or he's also created the, the newest ones like Antony and Reach and others. But on his Mozart when you all of a sudden translate uh, the, I think it was the Titanic that was almost like the drug dealers and, 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 and New York yeah, yeah, yeah. and everything But you see oh it, yeah it can also work it, in this setting it, or with this kind of frame what I think is for those younger audience that would have not wanted or, or had the way of, of feeling relevant in something that was so far away if it was mm. costumed in the epoch, it was composed but if they see it and they say I know I relate to those conflicts or those conflicts are of my time I just don't like the music or I don't understand the music and everything A little by little maybe they get into it mm. and for us who love the musical radar the plot and all that, oh, oh my god how rich and flexible this mm. storytelling mm. is mm. that you can even do it this way so I, I, it's, it's a translational thing. What I would say is I there are times in which it's done very well, and I love it, and it's just more about and the quality be of, the, mm. of the translation also. Mm.
0: Um. And in a museum as well, I think, I mean, but we're kind of getting off the topic, mm. but but in a museum as well, it depends on, on who you want to appeal to it and, and what your main objective is. For example, um, for some reason, I don't even really know why. Mm-hmm. I know you know about Rodin, Camille Claudel. I don't know why I got into that, and I think mm-hmm. my children have heard that, and I've made the stories interesting, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. or um, I've done with them. Um, we've tried to paint like Seurat, and we've tried to paint like so. Mm-hmm. So these have just been little things that I happen to have done with them. So, mm-hmm. of course, when they go see it and they, and they got close to the painting and they had their noses, you know, they're probably setting off alarms almost. And, mm-hmm. and then they went back and they, they were really just now fascinated mm-hmm. it from, from this experience. But I think had they not had the stories, what would help is a um, visual... Uh, uh, aid for children mm-hmm. uh, to 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 see the artists at work, mm-hmm. to 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 translate the 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 younger mm-hmm. audiences into that mm-hmm. moment of mm-hmm. what it means to have painted. To I mean, just we're, the, we're getting the, off. The, the <laughs> hands-on activities are or the hands-on activities yeah. as well. To mm-hmm.
1: translate, also, to see also how difficult it is to do them. So. people, also say, oh, I could have done that often. just try and do it. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. To use Pierre Bourdieu's terms, I, I used uh, Pierre Bourdieu well, in, my, in my doctoral dissertation, so what capital, whether cultural, or social, or symbolic, can mm. be gained by visiting museums and, and beyond just the cultural?
1: Yeah, well, there is, and, and again, a museum like this one has various functions in, in, in a community like Kansas City, uh, while it is the foundation of a museum like this at the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century, predicated also on the encyclopedic model, you know, we were all coming out of encyclopedia, um, that also in today's world is a bit challenged because of the notion of uh, the encyclopedic model, is it predicated also on a colonial past? And it is predicated on a colonial past, but the proper of the encyclopedia was also that it was the La critique de la raison pure, Kant also in that sense is saying, yeah, what is modern about our modern times is that we will criticize everything because by criticizing or putting it through the perspectives of analyzing it, we're making progress. So the notion of progress is also very much part of this But the museum coming out of that ethos. Um, is the way to frame the world. So, so it's we try to represent the world, different museums with better on words, we focus more on this or that, we're very well known for our Asian collections, for instance. Um, so you try to bring the world to a city. And the capital that you can get out of that is first of all saying, for the city's a pride to have re- representations from all of the world we're so distant to any coast, we're so embedded in the Midwest, but say this institution represents the world, and it's an access to the world. So for the people who are not born here in Kansas City, whether it's Asian descent, Southeast Asian, Mexico, or wherever you feel that you have a home. That's so one of the things we pride ourselves, we celebrate once or twice a year national naturalization ceremony. So the courts uh, come here and we receive more or less good year, bad year, between 100 people or 200 people from 40 to 60 nationalities on average that become Americans at the museum. And those celebrations, what is beautiful is you see people from all walks of life, people from all different countries, all circumstances, some voluntary uh, immigration to this country, some forced by the nature of the conflicts worldwide. But it is that at each of those ceremonies, you can only see the humanity coming together. And this placement for many of these people, English is becoming their second language or for others it's aspirational and they're found in America. So the reasons are multiple as Each individual case is, but all of a sudden, my greatest joy is to receive them and say, and most likely we have a work of art from your country. Mm, And it's not from your region. And so it is that. And so it's aspirational for because the city becomes and the museum becomes a representation of the world. Um and that is our responsibility. And the other the other side, it's also a civic pride. You know, you know that you have an institution that is an education institution that gives the possibility without having to travel to see the world to gain access to understanding that just like languages the world is nuanced that the expression of the human condition and the human being is predicated on where you see it that the filters and the nuances from different cultures give expressions to different and it should be um, experiencing that the best way to be more open minded, more immediately uh, encompassing, more welcoming, and more humbling, mm-hmm. because all of a sudden your point of view is just one among many.
0: And museums absolutely have this unbelievable capacity to bring different social classes, different mm-hmm. uh, educational backgrounds, different nationalities, etc. together mm. in sharing in one common experience, thus having the same mm. uh, <laughs> cultural capital, for example, also socially mm-hmm. uh, interacting with mm-hmm. different people from different walks of life. So I, I think that's an, and one of the things with the Nationalization Service I found that absolutely beautiful. That's a beautiful
1: you know, experience so. every time it happens. And, and in a way, uh, on an everyday basis, the equivalent of the Naturalization ceremony. Or, or the results of the, what happens thereafter. We're children from so many schools, public schools, we are free. So that also allows that there is not a impediment of, of, of an economic impediment to come. And I think that is a value that we all cherish. But when we bring school children, what you see is, well, the children of everyone that just became an American citizen, with the people who are, have been here for many generations, they're all mingling, so it is, um, the notion of coming together, but perhaps if the fifties or sixth, the notion of the melting flock that was America was trying to convey the notion of a homogenization, which happens. I mean, and also if, if, if you go 100 years, you see that every wave of immigrants, and I remember seeing this newspaper in from 100 years ago in New York at a museum that is the Museum Almost of Immigration called the Tenement Museum in New York City. Which is a fabulous institution. Um, every wave of immigration has had to deal with people hating them, and, and when at the very beginning of the century it was the Germans. There's a, a title I think uh, in New York's like, "Oh, is now you're going to become Sausage so City?" And all of these Germans, we have to, you know, and there's always the reaction against the other. Uh, And then that generation later, they're integrated. And then it's the Italians, and then it's the Puerto Ricans. And so, and the U.S. has had the ability that in one or two generations has the kids grow, they all speak English, and it it has integrated. But that was the model of of, not the the. the, the, I think today we recognize that integration doesn't mean separating yourself from your original language, to honor your ancestors from other cultures. And that you can live these multicultural lives. And I think we're richer because of that. And I think a museum like this is a place where you can exercise that. You can be proud of being an American today. And at the same time, you can be proud of the cultures that either your ancestry or you yourself are from. And say, this is part of what makes us human. Humanity is what brings us together. No, That's beautiful. That's beautiful.
0: Kansas City does not attract that much international tourism. I how, know. Does, how does how
1: does <laughs> it that way we can really work for our community? Okay. So, okay. Can, so
0: but but how does this and, affect uh, your 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 work or, or direct your work? So no and, and
1: because you're just, working for this community. Exactly. Uh, so so uh, it just having been I tell you this 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 day landed from New York and having been Tokyo when you have Thousands of people, so the, the equivalent, I think, the matter of, or, or the Guggenheim, the Guggenheim where I worked at one point, uh, 60% of the visitors that go to the Guggenheim on Fifth Avenue are foreigners that maybe visiting you New know, for the first time, want to see the Franklin Drive iconic building. And so those numbers skew the notion of who you're working for mm-hmm. you know, or who's going to enjoy this. And at the same time, you have to be at the best of your game. And and all the museums in New York, you see the quality of exhibition and every, it's just because I think they're also catering there, no longer only to their immediate community, which would be the the New Yorkers that appreciate art, but to a global, international group of people that value the arts. Because again, if you're going to be for the first time in New York, you have so many choices to do, but the people who love the arts will visit. Two or three of the museums, if not more. Um, here we don't have the factor of the international visitation. We have the factor that we need excellence because our, our, our community deserves and wants and appreciates the excellent sh- exhibition so that we don't lower the quality in respect to our New York show. Some of the shows have gone to New York, that we've generated, or vice versa, are inter- travel internationally. But we, what we do differently or what we can do is we are very close to the people that are coming to us, mm. And so we are in the business of trying to generate repeat visitation. And by repeat visitation, we are creating a menu of experiences over the years uh, that if you visit two or three times a year, you will have seen very different languages of art mm. because we are balancing our program so that you also expand your horizon. So I would not want uh, to create a program that you only visit once every five years when you come back to see what you already like. But if you're repeating uh, visitation, sometimes you're driven or our program is varied enough that we'll catch you with something that seems familiar to you and maybe discover on something that was less obvious. Mm. Or vice versa, so, you know, so that's that's a little bit the process. And some exhibitions are even designed like that. We had, for instance, an exhibition of Picasso mm. and African art. And the best compliment we got, it was almost a survey of Picasso and all the originality of this show that was premiered in Paris at the Cape Aldi, came here and then ended up in Canada, each time a bit different. It was that like you could see the whole career of Picasso and the influences that he got. From African art. And some people came because they love Picasso. But the best compliment is someone who said, I thought I didn't like Picasso, or I was not going to come, but I do love African art. And this exhibition has made me see Picasso in a different light. And now I like Picasso better. But for other people who thought they loved Picasso, what's it like, oh my god, but what I love more is discovering mm. what a beauty. And so those Uh, beauty african art is or or oceanic you know it it was Mm -hmm. very rich and all of a sudden that is what we attempt to do while building our program is to always bring you for something that you feel in your comfort zone but always include things that will reach out so that there might be discoveries you were not uh, intending or uh, attentive to and that maybe we expand the horizon of our visitors
0: Mm One of the museums that my children know very well mm-hmm. is the Museum for Fokerkunde in, in Hamburg. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're kind of regulars there. They, uh, we go there sort of uh, on Friday afternoons mm-hmm. and they, and it's the same thing where they feel very, very comfortable with this museum. They've, they've gone through several mm-hmm. times and then they look at the extra exhibits and the extra uh, what, what is there and then mm-hmm. they compare and they compare every time their visit is different and they, they notice something different. But a question with that—they—they um, they have a section on, on Native American uh, mm-hmm. art and on Native Ameri- the Native American experience. How is it different for, for example, for my children to see Native American art here in Kansas City, mm-hmm. where the Kanza, the Plains, the Cheyenne, and the mm-hmm. many, many different uh, other. Native American cultures lived and, and breathed not mm-hmm. so long ago. How is it different to experience Native American art here, mm-hmm. where, it was, where it was part of the culture, part of the, mm-hmm. the land, as opposed to abroad, for example, or in, in Germany? So,
1: I think the museum experience in itself is, uh, first of all, our collections of Native American are very rich and, 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 and such extraordinary quality that I think they'll get out. But on the other side, I would say the museum as a a construct, because again, and a construct of the Western culture, um, makes it that what it's, I would say, it's the richness of the dialogue between other works of art that you'll find within the system. So I I would say the difference of seeing plain Indians or, 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 or Native American art in the Folkekunde versus an encyclopedic art museum. So because here we're going to treat those same objects less anthropologically or ethnographically and more from a work of art perspective. And the relationships that you will see in this museum is next to American art. So we're saying there is a continuum of this experience. And now there's a continuum of disruption, of course, but this is the universe of what disrupts this world mm. or vice versa. And then we have contemporary Native American art because that is also a continuum that they are still alive, they're producing. And, and there is, of course, a, a critique even of our system, but you see it from a, the narrative of the arts more than an anthropological or uh, you know, uh, framing. So that in of itself. But I could say that the locus of being in Missouri or Kansas is not that prevalent. And you'll see in our collections, even the balance of our collections, we're not accentuating more here, because you would have also West Coast, you would have uh, uh, Southeast, so we're trying to be again there as it be, in that mm-hmm.
0: sense. Okay, my last question. In a TED talk, you said that a museum is the last refuge for our souls. Mm-hmm. In a time of advanced technologies and digitalization, mm-hmm. would you yeah. mind telling us more about the importance of sharing in the aura of a work of art to use Bata Benjamin's term?
1: So I think today and, and again, how visionary of Benjamin's writing at the time, what is going to be the nature of the art world well, now in the he calls in the area of mechanization? Uh, let alone the digitalization that also makes it sharing it worldwide um, and I think on the one side I value the possibilities and, I, and and I love the technology that we have at our hands and the fact that exactly you could prepare for this without having met ourselves before uh, because everything's on the website there's everything's life you know there's a, a life or website has all this information the images are perfectly available, our tech talk exists forever. Um, and yet, I think the experience of the museum, and that is something that we're all I think, cherishing and, and quantifying, you are in front of the work of art that the artist touched. You are finally in front of a piece, sometimes of marble. Right now we have some granites that were chiseled three or four thousand years ago by someone that physically was not unlike us, plus or minus some kilos or shades, sh- you know, whatever, but it's basically the same. But the systems of beliefs, the, the f- that person's gods, the way they went to bed, not knowing if the sun would rise the next morning but that they prayed to the gods so that the cycle of life would come back. The anxiety about the world's ending and the reverence for those gods and for those pharaohs made them chisel beautiful works of art. And today you see the work of those persons. So I think what is beautiful about a museum is that the the tangible result of creativity and and that's why we we're talking earlier about so the importance about drawing or, or experiencing, sometimes making something within the context of a museum, uh, is because it shows you how difficult it is on the one side, and but we have the same tools: eyes, senses, hands, um, and so it becomes a dialogue with yourself of representation, of how to represent. How do you represent today? What I was. Also, the notion that today we value image so much more than ever before because we can capture image. So, we are taking pictures of what we like. That's the way of expressing ourselves, putting it on in Instagram. But I think you're expressing that you like being in the presence of the work, I think. You know? mm-hmm. that, that, that self-evalidating you in the museum is saying, I still love being in the presence. Mm-hmm. Not like the medieval times in which we would travel miles and miles to go and see some relics. Mm. So those, these are the same, It's the same logic. It's the same construct.
0: Thank you, Julian Thank you. Sugasagoytia, for an amazing interview. This was great. Thank you, Julian Sugasagoytia. The Nelson Atkins Museum of Art is one of my favorite museums in the world. I hope to have the opportunity and the pleasure. To return sometime in the very near future. This is Dr. J, signing out.